Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. How many of you have ever really done an in-depth study of the atonement before this class? I mean, you really got in, you began to look at the atonement, you looked at all of the, the intricacies of the atonement. Anybody? Not, not many. When you think of the word atonement, what typically comes to your mind? Or what has come to your mind before we looked at this study? If I'd have said, what is the atonement, how would you answer that? Jesus died on the cross. Okay. Jesus dying on the cross. Okay. Shedding his blood for our sins. Substitute. A covering for our sins. Somebody, what else? Is ushering us into the presence of God. Okay, through the atonement, ushering us into the presence of God. Yeah, the atonement runs so deep. And what we're going to see tonight is how deeply that runs. Because a lot of times what we just simply say is the atonement is the covering, is Christ dying on the cross. He, but there's so much to it. And there are big theological terms here that we're going to be using, such as propitiation. Some of you have heard me mention that many times. Some of you are thinking, I'm not quite sure I even heard that word before. But we're going to dig into all of that tonight. Now, the first thing we want to do is look at the definition for atonement. And this is what Grudem says. He said, the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Now, it's interesting. That's really important. It's not just talking about the death of Christ. And most of the time when we talk about the atonement, we go right to the cross. But it is talking about his life, his work, his life, and his death. Now, the problem I have with this definition is that little word, earn. Earn. Because in our minds, more times than not, we think about, okay, is that referring to us earning something for our salvation? And we know that we cannot earn anything. Uh, It's only by the grace of God. And then you ask the question, did Jesus actually earn something for salvation? He was... The Son of God, He's perfect in every aspect. And so that throws people off a lot. And so the traditional definition is this. The work Christ did in His life and death to secure our salvation. Now, either one of them can work well. But for me, the word secure is better. Or purchased, or however you want to look at it. Because to me, it it clears up the thinking about earning and works on our part. Or what did Jesus specifically have to earn? Did he, uh, we talked about the substitution for us. We're going to get into all that. But for me, it just seems to work better to understand that Christ secured this for us. Now, You could take either one of those, but for me, I would rather use that because you stay away from the word earn, and it doesn't cloud it or confuse people's minds for things, because you and I cannot secure our salvation. Only the Lord Jesus can do that through His work and His life and His death. Now, He's got it broken up in a number of different places, but before I go, 
is there anybody else that kind of had a little bit of issue with that word earn thrown in there? Okay, several of you did. Is there anybody here that really it didn't really bother you? In fact, that you might feel that that's a better way of explaining it? Okay, you feel like it was good? It didn't bother you? No, no problem. I, I think when you, where you're even going through it, it just sounds like you just hear on TV and everything all the time about any subject. They're going, they're parsing so deep to try and find a reason. It just maybe it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. To me, yeah. do you read it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the one thing that we always have to do when we're dealing with Scripture is we do want to be as precise as we can. But I do think that there's some, care, some areas where there, there's definitely room for interpretation in a number of different areas. So it may, not, it may not be anything for you, but for me it was just something I said, well, I think a better word would just simply be to secure it. And that's what he did for us. Now, he breaks it down. He begins with the cause of the atonement, but we're not going to start there. I think that there's a piece missing that we need to understand, and I call it the case for atonement. The case for atonement. Why is atonement even necessary? And so what I want us to do is go back to the beginning. Take your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3... I want to give you four things about this case for atonement that we find in the book of Genesis. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, of course, that is the recording of the fall of Adam and Eve. You will remember that God gave Adam a simple command, and that command was, You shall eat from any tree of the garden, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will what? You will die. You will die. So God gives them this commandment. And then in chapter 3, it begins in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall, need, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Listen how crafty he is. Did he say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan knew what God commanded. And then the woman said, uh, we may eat from the fruits of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, did God say you shall not touch it? Never said that. Here she is confusing the commandment. By the way, God gave the commandment to Adam. Adam passed the commandment to Eve. And then what we find here, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here's the the case for the atonement. First thing is sin. Sin. Sin in the scriptures is, is is known as missing the mark. But it's also transgression. Missing the mark is missing the goal that God has. But transgression is moving away from a known path and willfully disobeying 
the commandment. And so what did they do? They knew what God said. And as a result, here's what they did. They sinned against the rightful, loving king. High treason took place in the garden. And there they plunged not only themselves, but they plunged all of humanity into sin from that point. Now, here's the second thing that comes out of that is shame. Shame. Now, you remember that it says that they saw and noticed that they were naked. Verses 8 and following. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All of a sudden, there's shame. It's interesting. When God created Adam and Eve before sin, he says that they were naked and they were what? Unashamed. They were unashamed. There was nothing to hide. There was absolute transparency between one another and Almighty God. There was a perfect communion and relationship between husband and wife and God. But when sin entered, suddenly there's shame. They begin hiding themselves. And isn't it interesting? Ever since the garden, we hide ourselves. We do all kinds of things to hide ourselves from God, don't we? And even hide ourselves from one another. We even do that as spouses. And, uh, and we got each other's number. The longer we've been married, we know that. But they tried to hide. And what did they do? In their brilliance and being like God, they took fig leaves to make clothing. Have you ever had a fig leaf on you? <laughs> it's not very comfortable. And so there is shame in the midst of this. And then there's separation. Look at verses 22 through 24. 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and placed a cherubim uh, and a flaming sword that turned in every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Their separation. God drove them out. And ever since that time, there's been a separation between man and Almighty God. But here's something I want you to see. In the midst of all of this, that's the case for it. We also see a snapshot of Christ's atonement. Look at verse 21. The man, uh, 20, 20 and 21. Or let's just look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. There is a picture right there of atonement. In their sin, in their shame, in their separation, God, the loving Father, the loving King that He is, we see a picture of atonement. And now, how do we see that's atonement? The word atonement in its basic definition simply means a covering. A covering. And in their nakedness, in their sin, in their shame, God creates a covering for them. It says that He created this from skins, which means this. Something had to die. Something innocent had to die for the sins of Adam and Eve. And there God Himself killed two animals. God Himself killed 
skint those animals, God himself placed those coverings on Adam and Eve. And there we see a snapshot in the very beginning of the heart of God. And then we see all of the Old Testament playing out towards the fulfillment of God's desired work of the atonement. And that's the picture that we find early in the garden. All you have to do is go back to verse 15. And that is called the Proto-Evangelium. That is the very first gospel that we see in the pages of Scripture. And it's a beautiful picture of what Christ is going to do. So when we look at this thing of atonement, we see the picture of it all the way back. And the reason for atonement is because every one of us is sinful. Every one of us in our sin walks in shame. Every one of us in our sin is separated from a holy God. And every one of us in our sin needs an atonement, a covering, a forgiveness, a redemption, a reconciliation. And that's the case for the atonement. Now, having laid that out, let's look at the second part that he talks about. He says the cause of the atonement. And in that passage, he talks about two specific things that are the causes for the atonement. We see it in Genesis, but not completely as we see it in the Gospels and particularly in the work of Christ. What was the first thing that he said was the um, cause of the atonement? What was the first thing? God's love. Absolutely. We talk about the love of God. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Here we find the motivation for the atonement in the heart of the Father is always love. It's love. And we're going to find in a little while that that was not necessary. Necessary. God didn't have to do that. But the fact that he loved us so much that he would give his son. How many of you would love your neighbor enough that you would give your only child for them? Probably not. It would be even hard to give your only child for somebody you really, really loved. But yet this is what God did for us. That shows the depth of his incredible love that he would go to that extreme that he would give the very best of heaven for you and me. And so anytime when people begin to question the heart of the father, they don't really understand the depth of the sacrifice that he gave for our redemption and our forgiveness. Have you ever had anybody question whether God is really love? Do we hear it all the time? Well, if God were really love or if God really loved me, or if God really cared about humanity, and when they say those kinds of things, they don't even understand the depths of his love and giving his only son. And so the motivation behind that is love. What's the second motivation? Justice. justice. Okay? Justice. And that justice is found in this big word that we're going to talk about tonight called what? All right. What is propitiation? Somebody tell me what propitiation is. First of all, I'm not going to ask you to spell it, okay? <laughs> but what is propitiation? 
I used that word a long time ago, and I use it all the time. But one of the college students said, I thought you were making up that word till I went to seminary. And that's all they talk about is propitiation. So somebody tell me, what is propitiation? There are a number of different kind of definitions. What's that? Appeasing God's wrath. Okay. Any, anything else? Any others? Uh, there's a part of it in that, but it's greater than just the substitution. What's that? Okay. Yeah. That's the ultimate outcome of it, yes. And it is appeasing. It is taking our place. But a really important word is it, it satisfies his wrath. Now, what is wrath? How would you define the wrath of God? Is it just ambivalent anger? What? Did you say something? Hatred of sin. Okay. Hatred of sin. Yeah. Is controlled justice against sin. Okay. Controlled justice against sin. The best way to define that is God's unchangeable hatred of sin. It's unchangeable. It's not this ambivalent anger that flies off at the handle. It is his holy justice, his hatred towards sin that never, ever changes. It is always consistent with all times and all situations and all people in all places. That's his wrath. And in Romans 1, it says the wrath of God is being poured out. It's an active thing that is happening. But when Jesus went to the cross... And this act of atonement is God's absolute justice being satisfied. It is satisfied in the work that Jesus did on the cross. So when Jesus goes to the cross, God's anger is satisfied. It is appeased. It is quenched. It is forever met with the appropriate sacrifice that will be appealing to his justice. That is a huge thing. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this. We write these things to you, little children, that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus the righteous. Then in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. He is the one that satisfies the wrath of God for us because you and I can never do that. And God's wrath is once and for all satisfied. Now, here's the thing that the world does not like. The world loves to hear about the love of God, don't they? But when you start talking about the wrath of God, what happens? What do people think? What do they say? It's, it's uncomfortable. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you saying God is wrathful? Absolutely. But he's wrathful 
in, in his holiness, and it's absolutely perfect. God never flies off the handle outside of his justice. God is always controlled in that wrath towards sin. And so when we talk about this case for atonement, this cause, it is driven by God's love and it's driven by his justice. Now I wrote one thing on the side here. One is not more important than the other. They both go together. That'd be like you ask me, what's more important, God's love or his justice? I would say, what's more important, inhaling or exhaling? You got to do both. And if you're going to have life, then both of those must be a reality in your life. And so the same is true when it comes to this. So God's motivation is love and his motivation is always his justice. If God did not act justly, would he be God? He would not. And so he must maintain his character of justice and he always maintains his character of love because God doesn't just love. Remember, he is love and he is just. So there we have the cause for atonement. So there's the case because of the sin and what we find in the garden. There's the cause for atonement. But then here's the big thing, the necessity of atonement. Now, he asked two questions for the necessity of the atonement, and I want you to answer those. Here's the first one. In what way was the atonement not necessary? Grudem talked about this. In what way is the atonement not necessary? God did not have to love us. Yeah. Yeah. Was God obligated to forgive us? No. Does God have to do it? No. Beautiful illustration that Grudem uses is that there were angels that fell. God didn't redeem them. He allowed them to continue in their fallen state. And God does not need us. That's one thing that we need to remember. He doesn't need us. We might think we're God's gift to one another, but we're not a gift to God because he doesn't need us, which is, which is a very humbling thing, isn't it? Because we like to think, J.R. Packard said many years ago, he says, we are created in the image of God, but we tend to bring God down to the image of man. And there's always a dangerous thing whenever we get to that place. And so, in what ways God does not need us? Here's a second question. I want you to answer this. In what way is the atonement absolutely necessary? If it's not necessary in one point, how is it absolutely necessary? When is the atonement absolutely necessary? When God decided to save us. Okay. When God made the choice to save us, then it was absolutely necessary for an atonement to take place. Remember, it's driven by his love and it's driven by his justice. And so one of the things that we can know just from that is how deeply God loves us. That he would even consider to save humanity. And even if he just went to save one from all of humanity... Would his price for atonement be any different? It would be the same. Whether it's for one, whether it's for a million, whether it's for a billion, however many it is, what we find here is that it is absolutely necessary because God needed to do what was necessary. And what was necessary 
was that Jesus would have to come. He'd have to live a perfect life. He'd have to die on a cross for our sins and in our place. He would have to do that. Now, he raises the question, if you remember about Jesus in the garden. Remember that? And he asked the question, is there a possibility that Jesus could have said, I'm walking away from this? Remember the struggle from his divinity and his humanity in the midst of the garden? And in the midst of that, I think that maybe even last week, the question was asked, could Jesus have possibly sinned? You know, we talked about that. And that was a question. Is it possible that Jesus could have walked away from the garden and not done the Father's will? Why? It's not in his nature. It wasn't his nature. He knew the will of the Father. And it goes back to that life of obedience to the Father. Now, does that make him any less human? People would say, well, if he's 100% God and he's 100% human, but if he could not possibly have sinned, then is he really human? You know, y'all dealt with that last week. And if he's, he's God then and just deity, then he never would have been able to sin. And that hypostatic union that we talked about last week or that you discussed is one of this kind of a mystery. We're going to talk about that Sunday when we get into the Gospel of John as we begin. But yes, sir. If we argue that Christ could not possibly sin, doesn't that kind of do away with Gruden's argument for act? It could, you could take it that way, but the fact, here's the thing that we have to remember. You and I only know of a sinful nature because our entire life, we are born with a sinful nature. We, there is that original sin in us and we choose to sin. So our whole nature is just always around this issue of sin. When we're tempted, we're being tempted because of a falling nature and our falling nature is weak and we give in to that temptation. Jesus never, ever knew sin. He never, ever sinned. So internally, he was different than what we are because we have a sinful nature. Now, if Jesus, could he have possibly sinned? Well, he was certainly tempted in every way that we are. And here's the thing that we have to remember about the temptation of Jesus. Our temptation ends when we sin. Now, there can be another temptation and another temptation. But the fact that Jesus never sinned, the temptation continued to increase and be more intense because he never did sin. And the devil was constantly, it says the devil left him for an opportune time. Um, and so in the midst of that, did Jesus feel the heaviness of temptation? Absolutely. But because of his perfect nature, he chose not to sin. And because of his perfect nature, he could walk away from that temptation in a way that you and I could not. But when we attempted, we sin, then we feel guilt and shame, the temptation's over. Jesus is tempted, never sinned, and the temptation became more and more and more intense all the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I don't think we're lessening the humanity of Jesus or even lessening the argument of that because that argument that we're getting ready to get, that's a great question, is one that, that paints the picture of Jesus' perfection for us. And that's what we're going to look at in just a moment. 
So that's a great question in that. But, and that's one of those mysteries that we can't understand. Uh, when you get into that hypostatic union of 100% divine and 100% man, we only know the human side, but not the perfected human side. And we can never know the divine side um, because we'll never be God. So let's go on to the next thing. He talks about this, the nature of the atonement. This is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this evening. As we're talking about the nature of the atonement, he begins by talking about Christ's obedience for us. And that's exactly what you were talking about right there. Christ's obedience for us. He calls this active obedience. What does he mean when he talks about Christ's obedience for us? And he makes a point that it is not just for Christ because he was already perfect. But how does his perfection help us? So as we talk about that, his obedience, he calls it active obedience. And this is where Jesus actively obeys the father in every single detail. Why was his perfect obedience important? Anybody? James. If he did not perfectly obey, then he would be no different than Adam, the first Adam. He would have sinned, and um, the wages, or what is due to him now for having sinned, is his own death. And so his death could not have counted for anybody else but himself if he had not perfectly obeyed. Okay. So it goes back to the question could he have sinned? How many, how many of you think he could have sinned? We got some, okay. How many of you think he could not have sinned? How many of you think that he chose not to sin? How many of you believe that he chose to obey the Father? Okay, we know that to be true. And so when we walk in that realm and we get in that, we, we understand this, that his obedience was one. It, the scripture says that Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And obedience was something that he did from the very early ages of his life. We never have a single hint of sin. Some people say, well, what about when he was 12 years old and he was left behind? Well, scripture never says he disobeyed his parents. It says that they left him. And he was doing what he had been doing, sitting in his father's house, speaking and lecturing to those great men who knew the scriptures. And there was no sin in that. They came back and found him. How would you like to have been his brother when he does every single thing right? You know, and then you say to him, what do you think you are? Perfect. Well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. You know, that would be very hard to swallow. And then his entire life was in that perfection. Now, his obedience in perfect obedience, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. And Jesus perfectly modeled the heart of God. How many times do we see in Scripture like somebody slaps him and he says, why did you hit me? Why did you strike me? If I did something wrong, tell me. No one ever accused Jesus of doing anything wrong except for claiming that he was God. Of course, healing on the Sabbath was a violation of their man-made traditions. 
But he wasn't here to obey men. He was here to obey the Father. And every single aspect of his life was perfect. Now, why is that so important for you and me, that he was perfect? Because he couldn't shed his blood to cover us if he wasn't perfect. Okay, the sacrifice had to be flawless. That's right. And so in his perfection, this is what his perfection is for us. His perfection is not just to clean the slate for us. If Jesus died and just forgave us of our sins and cleaned the slate, but he didn't impute his righteousness into us, we would never make it to heaven. We would never do that. You remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21? He who knew no sin became what? Sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ. So his perfection was in perfect obedience to the Father, but it was for us. Because in that perfection, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that's part of the atonement. So, we see his perfect obedience. But secondly, Christ's suffering for us. This is what they call the passive obedience. The act of obedience is what Jesus did to live perfectly for the Father. We, we, can, we can debate all day, could he have sinned, could he have not have sinned? But the thing we know is that he chose to obey his Father. Not my will, but what? Your will be done constantly. So when we get to this part of suffering for us, this is what Jesus actually did. When you read Isaiah chapter 53, the whole picture is of a suffering servant, isn't it? When you read Psalm 22, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's a picture of his suffering um, on the cross. And so we know that he suffered for us. But there are a number of ways he suffered. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill in these blanks. It says he suffered for us during his whole life. How did Jesus suffer during his whole life? What are some ways he had to suffer? He was denied by his own people. Okay. By the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. There was rejection. Yep. Certainly. Rejection by people, misunderstood, accused of all kind of wrong, unjust things. Okay. He suffered there. Sin alone causes suffering. The temptation, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And the strength that it takes to withstand that can create suffering. What was it like in a garden of Gethsemane for him? So intense that he was literally sweating drops of blood. Uh, the medical profession will tell us that what happens is a person can become so stressed that the corpuscles uh, just under their skin can burst. And then you literally sweat drops of blood. It's very rare. But that was the intensity that Jesus suffered in the garden. It says the angels had to come and minister to him after that because he was so exhausted from that. What are some other ways he suffered? He lived in a perfect place and came down here to live in a sinful world. Walking through a broken world and, and living among broken people. We can look at all kinds of different ways that in his life as he dealt with that, we could see the suffering. How would you like to go back to your hometown and, and you declare truth and they want to throw you over the cliff? You know? um, or consider this. How many times did they consider that 
Jesus, they, they said it in a very derogatory way about you're the son of Joseph and Mary, which, which understands that there was a lack of integrity that people would take from that comment. And all of those things. So he certainly suffered his whole life. But secondly, he says he suffered pain on the cross. Pain on the cross. Um, and the cross was one of the most barbaric forms of execution that the world had ever encountered. In fact, it was so barbaric, if you were a Roman citizen, you would never be executed on a cross. They would never do that because it was so barbaric. And on the cross, there's the physical pain and the death. You read the piece in there about the, the, the medical experts and what they say? Jesus' body would have already been in hypovolemic shock before he ever made it to the cross because of the beating of the cat of nine tails. He, I mean, he would have been almost dead at that point and then having to carry his cross. And when they put the nails in, a lot of pictures depict them being in the palms. That's not where they would have put the nails. They would have inserted it in the wrist for two reasons. Because they would have hung on the cross. It would not have torn. And the median nerve... The most painful nerve in the body is right there. And a nine-inch spike being pierced into that is an incredible thing. And then one nailing both of your heels together with the body contorted and the knees lifted up at a certain angle, you would have died of asphyxiation on the cross because you, you cannot exhale. You have to lift up to exhale. And every time you lifted, there was a tearing of the flesh. Just think of the physical pain that Jesus went through on the cross. But then there was the spiritual pain of just bearing sin. What would the spiritual pain have been for Jesus? What do you think the spiritual pain would have been for him on the cross? What's that? Okay, yes. His whole life before he came to earth, he was in glory. I mean, with the Father. He came to earth. He was still holy, still perfect uh, the whole time that he was here. And then he took all of the filth and the nastiness of this whole world, of everyone that would come to him. He took all that upon himself. Yeah. I mean, it's worse than, in my eyes, worse than jumping in a sewer. Is basically what he took upon himself. Yeah. And he knew that that's what he was taking on himself. And he had never sinned, never even been close to it. Yeah. Think about perfect holiness and his hatred for sin. Yeah. And yet every... I mean, think about the most heinous sins imaginable. And they're put on Jesus. The most ashamed... The thing that you would be most ashamed of in your whole life and put on him. Not to mention the fact that he would have been crucified naked as a part of absolute humiliation in that culture. Beaten, naked, and then every sin that you can imagine that would just grieve the heart of the Father placed on one who was perfect. I mean, we can't, we, you and I can't even imagine that. We don't even like being accused of things that might almost be true about us. Not to mention things that have never, ever been in the heart and the mind of the Son of God. And yet, that was on him. 
And then there's the next thing. There's the abandonment. You said that. Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we're going to see this Sunday is that there has never been a time where Jesus has not been face to face with the Father from eternity past. This is the only time in Scripture where He calls Him my God and not Father. The only time. And He calls out because God turned His back because of the sins, my sin, your sin, the sins of all those who will come to Him, placed on Him. And then, bearing the wrath of God. There it is, the full wrath. There it is, what you and I deserved, the fixed anger and the justice of God poured out on His own Son. Now, the thing is that we like to say a lot of times is these people and these Jewish people, uh, the Romans, all these people crucified Him, nailed Him to the cross. They did. But when you get to Isaiah... Chapter 53, he says, and it, got, it pleased God to crush him. Pleased God to crush him. Then you get in the book of Acts. It says, those you've hung on the cross by the predetermined will of God. All of this goes back to the heart of the Father. Allowing this and even Jesus submitting to the Father to do that on our behalf. Wow, what's incredible love that is. And so in the midst of all that, he writes this statement that I think that we need to understand. He says, it is important to insist on this fact, and I put in parentheses that Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin, because it is the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. It means that there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and the justice of God that sin be paid for. That's the heart of the atonement right there. And the heart of the atonement is actually God's wrath being satisfied. And you and I can't even comprehend the heaviness of the wrath. The writer of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is this atonement. He talks about it called the penal substitution. James, you talked about that a little bit earlier. Penal substitution. Talks about penal meaning penalty, substitution, somebody taking our place. So just, I put it in words, Jesus became our substitute and bore our penalty for sin when he died on the cross. Now, as you look at everything we just talked about, then you, it makes sense that Jesus would be our substitute. He would die in our place to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. And when we come to this, then the New Testament begins to give us the terms that describe um, this atonement. I love the way he puts it in there. It's real simple. And I just put into parentheses the words that he was ultimately going to. We deserve to die as the penalty for sin. There is the sacrifice right there. Jesus sacrificed himself. Some call it a vicarious sacrifice, which just simply means that he took our place in that. Hebrews 9.26 talks about the fact that Jesus sacrificed and paid the penalty for our sin. Secondly, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin, but Jesus come, becomes our propitiation. There Jesus 
appeases the wrath of God on our behalf. Thirdly, we're separated from God by our sins, but what does Jesus do on the cross? Reconciliation. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 says, and it says that God was reconciling the world to Himself through Christ. And then now we are giving the ministry of reconciliation. So on the cross, not only is there the sacrifice and propitiation, but there's this reconciliation that happens only through the work of Christ. And then fourthly, we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. But there we have redemption. Redemption, Mark 10.45 says this, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life, what? Ransom for many. The word ransom means to buy back. It's to buy back. That was a, use, a term used for slavery, that people would ransom slaves. They would buy them back to set them free. How many of you remember growing up with um, S&H green stamps? Remember those? The green stamps. You would collect all the green stamps and you would what? Redeem them for something. You would pay all this money through all these products, collecting these stamps, thinking, I'm going to get something for free. But you just paid probably three times of what it really cost to get it. But you redeem it. You, pay, you buy it back and it's yours. I remember on the icy cups. Remember the icies? They used to have the little diamonds. As kids, man, we'd collect those things and turn them in and we'd get some little cheap prize for it. But we thought we got something for free. But what Jesus did here on the cross, He ransomed us. He paid the price and He set us free. Now, He talks about other views of the atonement. And He gives four of them. I want you to tell me what they are and the difference between them. There's the ransom to Satan theory. What is that talking about? That's contrary to what we've learned. The ransom to Satan. Purchasing us from Satan. Yeah. Not from the God. Yeah. So what happens is we're being bought from Satan. So Satan gets paid the price. Or, you know, and, and so what's the problem with that view? We don't owe Satan anything. It makes it seem like Satan, instead of God, is the one that's concerned about the price for sin. And uh, yeah, perfect. What is the uh, moral influence theory? A lot of them are, are similar from this point on. They're real close. But what does the moral influence theory say? God didn't require a payment for sin. Okay. He didn't require the payment. Then what was it done for? Yeah, he just, he just show a way to show it. He loves us, yeah. I love you this much. I'm going to give you my son, but it's not necessary for him to pay the price. So, boy, that seems kind of morbid for God, huh? To send his son to die for no reason at all? So, that's kind of weird. The example theory. Somebody tell me, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't pay for your sin. It just kind of shows you how you should live your life and trust God. Even though you live your life and it might not turn out to the benefit or that you've hoped in, but just trust Him. He loves you. 
and, and, and it's just kind of empty, isn't it? The governmental theory, what is that? This one, I think, is the strangest of all. Well, oh. <laughs> he died for sin. He didn't die for sin. He just died to show what happens if there, because there's a price that needs to be paid for sin. So those things are um, very empty and void. Now, he ends this chapter in a very strange way, but it's very significant. And many times people don't understand this. He ends the chapter by asking the question, did Christ descend into hell? Did he descend into hell? He takes us through the, the Apostles' Creed and, and he gives us the history of that. How many of you remember growing up and quoting this creed that Jesus descended into hell? Anybody? See, I was raised Catholic. So if you're raised Catholic... You heard that a lot through your Catholic upbringing, that he descended into hell. What's that? I skipped it. Oh, oh, you skipped that part? Yeah, I'm not saying that. Okay. Yeah. Is that just because you didn't want to say H-E-W toothpick? Or? Okay. Yeah. Well, what about in Ephesians where it said, he who ascended also descended? Okay. Just this physical body was put into, into a grave. Is what he's saying that that's what meant rather than actually descending into it. Yeah. Okay. Now, if, yes. What about the theory of Sheol, the good side and the bad side, the parallel side? Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that in just a second because there is, there's a boat of the, the dead. If you go to Luke chapter 16, you find the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes into torment. Lazarus, of course, goes into the bosom of Abraham. And there's a distinction, and it talks about a chasm that separates the two of them. Um, and um, we'll talk about that in a minute, but there is, there is that distinction there. So here's the reason he raises... What, what, what are the evidences that we can find in Scripture that Jesus did not go into hell? Huh? What are scriptural references? John 19.30. Right at the end, he says, it is finished. Okay. There is nothing else for him to do. All right. He done it all. Okay. When he told the other prisoner, today I'll see you in heaven. Okay, today I'll see you in paradise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Luke 23.43. Luke 23.46, it is finished. Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. To telestai is a Greek word. Also is an accountant's term that means paid in full. And so it's completely. Now, why would Wayne Grudem end this chapter asking this question? Why do you think this question is even appropriate for dealing with the atonement? Anybody? Okay. So I would think that the atonement, maybe part of the atonement was that Jesus had to go to hell to satisfy the wrath. There, there has been a teaching 
that has gone around and has surfaced from time to time and it's come back up again. And the thought is that the atonement is not what took place on the cross. That wasn't the atonement. The atonement was that Jesus went to hell. And for three days, he was beat up by demons. He was tortured by demons. He went to hell in our place. And then after three days, the Father in heaven is thinking, what do I need to do? And he's wringing his hands. And all of a sudden, he pulls Jesus out of hell, brings him back on the grave. And because of his suffering in hell is the atonement. There's a teacher out there that's a false teacher, and many people listen to her. Her name is Joyce Meyer. And Joyce Meyer believes strongly that the atonement wasn't what happened on the cross. The atonement was Jesus going to hell and paying the price. And here's how she takes this. When Jesus turns to, and one of the defenses of that is what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. She says, no, for 2,000 years the church has gotten that statement wrong. What happened was somebody moved the comma. And the literal rendering of the verse, here's what she says, is I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. I say to you today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise. And so therefore Jesus did not mean today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm telling you today that you'll be. Now, why would Jesus have to say today? They were all dying that day. There wasn't going to be another day. And the Greek language doesn't allow for that. She even asked the question, well, Joyce, why is it after 2,000 years you're the only one teaching this? And her answer was, because God showed me. And she said this, that if you don't believe in this is the atonement, you do not have salvation. I listened, Chris and I listened to the tape of her voice saying these things. And this is what's so important. The atonement isn't what happened in the grave or the three days that Jesus was, his spirit was apart from his body. It didn't happen in hell. The atonement happened on a cross. And that's the work for us. And so when you deal with this issue of the atonement, we need to be very careful and we need to be very biblical in that. So here's what I want to do in closing. I want to ask you to take the applications. I'm going to ask you just a couple of questions so you can respond. Number one, in what ways has this chapter enabled you to appreciate Christ's death more than you did before? In thinking about the atonement, in what ways has this caused you to appreciate the death of Christ for you more maybe than you've ever thought about? Well, anytime you come to the realization of what he did yeah. and how he suffered, it, yeah. has to, it has to affect you in some way. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of includes a question that was asked last week and then you asked again this week, you know, could, could he have sinned? And then also ties into Joyce Meyer's explanation of how God is standing up in heaven 
trying to figure out what to do. And even in one case, Grudem says that he was finding a way. So I didn't particularly like that yeah. that phrase that he used. But what the last two weeks have really, I guess, uh, shown me is that this whole thing's not Plan B. Right. Right. This isn't uh, God's response to something he didn't see coming or didn't plan on happening. And so could could Jesus have sinned? Well, no, because he planned on not sinning, and then he executed his plan. And so I, I just, for me, to see all of it playing out, it, it brings, drives home the assurance of um, when you, you know, Romans 5.1, you know, since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. So when we experience that peace, that's not an accident, and that it is assured. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, not, there's not a doubt in whether or not um, we've understood this gospel correctly. It is assured. Good. That's good. I think by reading this and then going back and reading scripture on the atonement and the things that he done, it's given me a much deeper love hmm. for Christ than I. I've always had a love for him, but it's given me a much deeper love to know the depths of the suffering, the things he took unto himself. Bearing the wrath of God, the justice of God, mm. uh, that He would come from glory mm. to do that. I mean, it's just you—you you can't. I can't. I still can't fathom mm. that kind of love. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my big takeaway was something I knew, but it really reinforced the the life He lived mm-hmm. was the perfect life. To yeah. so necessary and the fact that he didn't come to be served but he came to serve yeah yeah and, uh, that was really reinforced to mm. it's very humbling number three do you think that Christ's sufferings were enough to pay for your sins do you think he did enough yes. yeah and, and beyond I like number four if Christ bore all the guilt for our sins, all the wrath of God against sin, and all the penalty of death that we deserved, then will God ever turn his wrath against you as a believer? No. Can you grieve the heart of God as a believer? Yeah. Can you sadden the heart of God as a believer? Can God be disappointed in our choices? Will God ever disown you as a child? Never. Never. Because remember this. You were not accepted by your work, but by the work of Christ on the cross. You were not saved by your work, but by the work of Christ on the cross. You were not kept by your efforts, but by the work of Christ on the cross. And because of that, you can never be disowned by the Father. Until the day of redemption. That's exactly right. And and that means until the full reality of the redeeming work of Christ is seen in glory. And so that means that there are times that the enemy wants you to think that God doesn't love you or that he can disown you. And there are people who struggle with the possibility of losing their salvation where that is not taught in the pages of Scripture, 
John writes in 1 John chapter 5, he says, We write these things to you, little children, that you may know that you, in the present tense, are having eternal life. And it even goes into the perfect tense. You are saved by grace and not that of yourselves. It literally says in the Greek, you are having been saved. You were saved, you are being saved, and you shall be saved. And that will never be taken away from you. The atonement settles once and for all our eternal love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And it can never be taken away. If Christ has indeed redeemed you from bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan, and there are areas in your life which you could more fully realize, or there are areas in your life you can fully more realize this to be true. So the challenge is for us to think, okay, this is what Christ has done for me. How am I going to take the work of the atonement and enable the Spirit of God to work that deep within me that I can walk in the kind of obedience that Jesus had for the Father. Now, we'll never be perfect in that. But John does write. We write these things that you may not sin. That's the ideal. But if anyone does sin, that's the real. He has an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus the righteous. The word advocate there means a defense attorney. Someone who is always calling your name to the Father. And because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross, that's where we're satisfied. The wrath of God is satisfied. And that's where we are secure. So this is important for us to know this. But it's important for us to live it. And it is important for us to tell others about it. Thank you for your time tonight. There was a lot you read. You've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. Next week, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ. Um, and um, actually, Matt Holland is going to lead next week, our worship pastor. And he's been working on it all this week and uh, is excited about it. And he's pulling out all kinds of different positions on that that you'll be able to read about. Okay? So we're going to continue pressing on. Thank you for doing this and continuing on. We started with 90, and we're down to you. Um, and... Uh, we're so grateful for it. Like I said, this is some heady stuff. We work through it. But I'm going to tell you, long term will help you to have a deeper love and appreciation for what God has done for you and what he will do in you. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for his work on the cross that, as we've said, we can't even fathom the depths of it. But, Father, may we walk in the reality of this, as your Holy Spirit continues to burn this deep within our hearts and our minds, and this become a reality in our lives, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media, and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.